grace, mercy, peace to you, friends, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Again, this morning's reading sort of revolved around this theme. What's the church? And in particular, we heard a number of spots that talk about leaders being called into the church and what their task is. We heard about Joshua and Moses. We heard about a man named Apollos. As Paul wrote, we we saw Jesus calling the twelve disciples. In that first reading, we saw that Moses uh, is concerned as a leader for God's people. We heard about Moses' life last week in our message. Some of you were here for that. If you weren't and want to hear that, you can catch it on the, the podcast feed. Moses, by the end of his life, knew that he would not be allowed to enter the promised land with this, this nation, this community, as he calls it, that he had led for all these years. And he's concerned. He loves God's people. He loves this this community, this nation which he's been serving, and he wants to make sure that as they enter into the promised land where he won't enter with them, he wants to make sure that they have a leader who will shepherd them, who will take care of them. It's the same thing God is concerned for, and so God raises up a leader, Joshua, who replaces Moses. God is concerned too, just as Moses is, that his people be cared for. When Jesus came and walked on this earth, he felt that same concern. He saw that the crowds of Israel had said, and he was concerned that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So he raised up these, these 12 followers to be shepherds, to share his message with people. Our second reading also had this, this theme of leaders called into service in God's church there. We heard about a few of them. And that's going to be the, the, the reading on which we're focused this morning. As always, we've got these three readings each Sunday, sort of revolving around a particular theme. And one of those becomes our focus lesson, the one we're going to spend a little time unpacking, uh, considering. Last week, we started a new Sunday morning Bible study hour after the worship service. Uh, by We're going to work through this book. It's called 10 Questions to Ask Every Time You Read the Bible. If the Bible is something that's not terribly familiar for you, if you're not necessarily in a rhythm of already reading the Bible, what this book intends to do is give you a little bit of a uh, a framework, a a structure to come at reading the Bible. After service today, uh, our Bible study hour, we'll have a second session on that. But as a either a catch-up for anybody who wants to join for that discussion but wasn't here last week, or even for those who were but want a little bit of a refresher, uh, today I want to use the first two of the ten questions to look at this this text that we're looking at from 1 Corinthians, uh, the two questions that we looked at last week. And those two questions are, who is the enemy? And how is this enemy defeated? Those are laid out for you there in your service folders. These are the questions with which this book sort of starts its, its framework of discussing the Bible. And that seems like a strange place to start this discussion of enemies. But as we talked about last week in our Bible study hour, it, it helps us remember something about Christianity, this religion which the Bible teaches. Christianity shares a particular message with us. All is not well. There is something wrong. To put it strongly, Christianity teaches this. You are not safe. There, there are enemies attacking you. You are under a threat. 
And we talked about last week these these three all the all the threats, all the fears, all the anxieties, the worries, the things that that present themselves in our lives can sort of be summed up in three top level categories: sin, death, and the devil. These three enemies attack us in various ways with various goals. They're always seeking to harm us. It's important that we see this. It's important that we understand that we're not safe, that there's something wrong. And really, once we step out, it's easy to, to sometimes shut ourselves off, especially as modern Westerners with modern medicine and airbags in our cars and longer than ever in human history life expectancies. We're not safe, are we? And we're not safe from, I'll give you three more categories, other people, uh, we're not safe from the world, we're not safe from ourselves. We're not safe from other people. And somebody could make a choice that affects you. Somebody could choose later today to be driving next to you on the highway after having drunk a whole pitcher of margarita by themselves. Someone could walk in and decide to, to shoot up your workplace, your church. We're not safe from other people in that way. We're not necessarily safe from the world as it stands. Uh, we need to be aware of that. Right? Hurricanes can come and knock down whole coastal communities. Uh, wildfires can ravage entire towns. We're not safe. We're not safe from ourselves. Our choices, our decisions, our actions uh, can harm ourselves. Or you could say something that ends a relationship. You could fall into the temptation of saying, well, who will know and end up making a choice that ultimately costs you your job? Not safe. And this book has us consider that fact as we get into reading the Bible. That we have enemies, that we are unsafe. In this reading that we're looking at this morning from 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul wants to make the Corinthians aware that they're not safe. That they are not in and of themselves secure. We want a little context to understand this, this reading, this, this uh, selection from 1 Corinthians. And we should understand who these people are, who Paul is, who this, what this whole situation uh, was. So you've got the Apostle Paul. Fascinating background. For today, all you really need to know about Paul is that he was a preacher, teacher, a missionary in the early Christian church. Lived about 2,000 years ago. He was probably only a few years younger than Jesus himself. Paul traveled through what we would call now the Roman Empire world, uh, Greece, Italy, Turkey, all these places. And as he did so, he shared the good news of Jesus with the people that he encountered, the message that Jesus, God himself in the flesh, had come down to earth to live the life that we couldn't, to, to live a perfect life, to be God's chosen Savior, the Messiah. Paul shared with people that God looks at us because of Jesus, perfect life and innocent death. God looks at us and sees Jesus. He does not see us, ourselves. He does not see our failures, our sins, our faults. He looks at us and sees the righteousness of Jesus as a gift, freely given, not something we earned or deserved. That was Paul's message, and he traveled all across the Roman world teaching this message and starting churches where people gathered around him to hear that message. He started one church in a place called Corinth, and that's where he wrote this letter to. These Corinthians 
where a group that Paul had brought together around that message uh, served for some time and then left. And he wrote them a couple of letters to address some issues that they were having in the congregation. Well, why were they having issues in the congregation? I should explain a little bit about this ancient city of Corinth. It's still a city that exists today. There's still a city called Corinth that you could go and visit in Greece. This ancient, ancient city is very nicely located for commerce. That's located on on a very narrow strip of land, an isthmus on a peninsula in Greece. You've got two bodies of water on either side. There's only about a six-mile uh, isthmus there where Corinth is located. And in ancient times, this, this city then was known for commerce. Money flowed into it because of that. It was a beautiful place to, to transport goods. In fact, uh, one of the ancient precursors to modern railways, a thing called the Dialkas, was built there. Uh, people would load small ships in one harbor onto wheeled carts, and they would drag them six miles, eight miles, depending on the route, across this isthmus of Corinth and drop them off in the other harbor. It saved an incredible amount of time circumnavigating the peninsula. It saved an incredible amount of risk sailing around the peninsula. It was a very efficient way to transport goods because of this. Money flowed into Corinth. People flowed into Corinth. And as always, wherever you get people, money, opportunity, sort of lumped together in vast quantities, sin came to Corinth too. Corinth became known as a place where you could indulge in just about every sort of vice imaginable. Uh, in fact, the Greek language invented a word um, Corinthiadzestai, to act like a Corinthian, which just meant to act like a debauched fool, to, to engage in all sorts of revelry and, uh, and whatever you could get up to. You could drink in Corinth to your heart's content. You could gamble in Corinth. You could have sex in Corinth. You could, have, uh, you could do anything in Corinth. The thing that made you able to engage in all those fun pastimes was money. And so people in Corinth became very aware of money. And of course, what money brings with it then and today is status. People in Corinth were hyper aware of status. See, in Corinth, all of this industry, all of this, the Dialkas and all the harbors and all the hustling, bustling commerce required a large pool of cheap labor. Free, of course, was best. And so at one point, probably during the times that Paul's visited, uh, Corinth was made up of one-third, at least, enslaved people so that they could drag these ships across the peninsula so that they could unload these ships in the harbor so that these goods could be sent all throughout the Roman world, all throughout their area. These slaves were state property, uh, worked often until they died. A number of the Corinthian Christians were slaves. We read in this letter to the Corinth. To Corinth. Uh, Paul's message brought them hope beyond just this, this awful, backbreaking existence, this literally worked-to-death existence. But not all of the Corinthian Christians were slaves. Some of them belonged to the free classes. Some of them belonged to the upper classes. Some of them worked in the Roman administration. And in a place that was hyper-aware of status, like Corinth, how do you think folks started relating to one another when these people who, in the normal world, would never, ever, ever associate with one another, started having to sit down 
with one another for worship, started having to eat with one another, started praying with one another, speaking with one another. Oh, right, we have kind of a rosy vision of what that would look like, right? Everyone just overcoming their class differences. Oh, uh, the letter that Paul writes shows us that just as we would kind of expect, things were rocky. Paul writes to the enslaved Corinthians, and he tells them that there's nothing to be ashamed of in the fact that you're a slave. There's no shame, no particular stigma that God intends to attach to you because you're a slave. But he tells them, if you can get free, you ought to. If you can gain your freedom, certainly, by all means, do so. But why is he having to write this? Why is he having to comfort them and encourage them in the fact that they're enslaved and they feel shame and stigma? Well, probably because some of the other Corinthian Christians were making them feel shame and stigma. He writes and rebukes uh, the, the rich of the congregation who are coming to worship with lavish meals packed for themselves and fellowshipping exclusively with one another. These class markers, these status differences, are dividing the congregation. That can still happen today in Christian churches. We don't have maybe the same sorts of status markers. I'm sure it was much easier then to see uh, who would have been a slave versus who would have been a free merchant. But we still see status markers as we walk around and look at one another and talk with one another. How, does, how do we speak? What, what clothes do we wear? What car do we come driving? What school district is our house located in? We're, we're very aware of these things too as Americans, maybe particularly as New Yorkers. All of those outside cultural status differences gave the Corinthians opportunity to divide and to butt heads, and that was bad enough. There was another issue, and it's what comes up in the text that we're reading today that really was terribly destructive for the Christian congregation there. Uh, Paul was no longer serving the Corinthian congregation at the time that he wrote this letter. He had left, and a man named Apollos, another missionary, had come and started to serve the Corinthians in Paul's place. At this point, though, it seems that Apollos had also left, and so the leadership in Corinth was native leadership. Corinthians raised up from among the church to serve the church uh, as its leaders. Not all the Corinthians seem to have liked that. Why? Well, because it gave some Corinthians higher status than other Corinthians. And so what happens is in the Corinthian congregation, you've got factions that begin to form. Uh, you've got the native leaders pointed by the the missionaries who had come and begun this congregation, but this group develops over here that starts saying, well, they don't know about these guys. We follow Paul. He was the one who started this congregation. He's the one who shared the gospel with us. This is the guy who got, why wouldn't you want to follow Paul? Why, why follow them? Then you've got another faction that emerges. Well, Paul left Apollos in charge after him. We follow Apollos. He was the one who, who, who got us to the point that we're at now, right? He's the pastor who oversaw this, this new phase of our, our existence as a congregation. And then you've got yet another faction who rejects the, the new native leaders, but also rejects the missionaries and just sort of proudly says, no, mm, we follow Christ. Ooh, ooh, doesn't that sound so sanctified and holy? Proudly to describe the way that they attached themselves to these different leaders. See, that was the, the enemy. And we're talking about who was the enemy. The enemy in Corinth was pride. The Corinthians were looking for ways to feel important, bigger, 
to have control. That's what pride is. It's, it's seeking to be on top. It's seeking to put myself on top. It's seeking to find some metric, some standard, some way that allows me to be honored, recognized. Uh, what's the word we use these days? Seen. The enemy in Corinth was pride. But pride is pretty natural to the human heart, isn't it, right? Kids start to show that they understand pride, that they understand these dynamics when in grade school they start getting really interested in which, which of my classmates is fastest? Which of my classmates is tallest? Who's the biggest? Who's the smartest? Who's the oldest? Of course, we get older, right? And we realize that's, that's all kid stuff. That, who cares about who's oldest, who's tallest, who's smartest? We probably age out of most of that, though, because uh, we realize that there's actually probably always going to be somebody. There will be somebody who's older than me. There will be somebody who's taller than me. There will be somebody who's smarter than me. But there will be somebody who's more successful than me. I can't get on the top that way anymore like I could when there were just 20 of, 20 of us sitting in a classroom together. As we get older, all we like to do is move into a more refined kind of pride. Oh, no. I, it's not about me, but maybe I can attach myself to a group. That's going to be on top. Maybe I can define myself that way. Maybe I can find some pride in that. So my, you know, my team is the best in the league. I'll quote you all kinds of statistics that can bear that one out. I'll feel a lot of pride in that. Maybe my nation is the best. right? Where I'm from. Oh, it's, it, it's better here than anywhere else. Or you could come here and say, no, it's so much better there. Maybe my skin color makes me feel better about myself as compared to other people, makes me feel better about my group as compared to other people. Any way that I can sort of attach myself to a group that's on top. Because even if it's not me personally that's on top, if the group I'm attached to is on top, then in a way, I am on top. God says it's all foolishness. Foolishness if you're trying to figure out if you're taller, standing up on your tiptoes. It's foolishness if you're trying to attach yourself to a group of sinners, you a sinner attached to a group of sinners over against other groups of sinners that you can convince yourself that you're, you're at least better than them. What does it matter? Does it make you any more righteous in the eyes of God? Does it make you any more righteous in the eyes of the world? See, your group may agree that you guys are best. That group doesn't. Why do you care so much about what your group thinks and not what that group thinks? Well, it's because you're a part of that group. That's the opinion that you've decided that matters. That's the opinion that you've decided is on top. As long as that opinion is on top, you feel good about yourself. You feel happy about yourself. You feel that you've achieved something. Paul says this is not the way that Christians look at things. Paul talks about himself and his ministry and his, his uh, the way that he is evaluated in the way that he evaluates himself. And he says, I care very little. If I'm judged by you all, the Corinthians, if I'm judged by any human, even if I'm judged by myself, I don't care about any of those judgments. I don't care if I think, Paul says, that I'm the best preacher, teacher, pastor, missionary that you guys have ever met. I don't care if you guys think that I'm the best preacher, teacher, pastor, missionary that you've ever met, he says. It is not human opinion matters one whit about anything. 
It's God's. Paul says, the Lord will judge me. Sometimes we use that passage, right? Well, God's the only one who can judge me. It's kind of a, a, a terrifying thing. Right? We ought not try and comfort ourselves with that. Paul says, it's not, it's not human opinions that matter about me as a pastor, a preacher, a teacher. It's God's. Paul is not going to try and compare himself to Apollos, to the 12 apostles, to anyone else serving a Christian congregation to, to make himself feel better, important, more fulfilled. He's going to compare himself to the standard that God sets out for ministers. And what does Paul say that is? Faithfulness. It is evident that those who have been given a trust should be shown to be faithful. Does Paul do, he tells the Corinthians, this is the way to measure me. Does Paul do the work to which he has been called as a shepherd in Jesus' church? That's the standard. How is this enemy defeated? Right, That's the second of our ten questions there. How is the enemy defeated? How is this enemy of pride that seeks to, to, to attach itself to Christians defeated? Well, for a minister, that's how pride is defeated. Remember that it's not about how do I stack up against other ministers? It's about am I faithful with the service to which I'm called? Let me tell you as a pastor that that knocks pride out of me pretty quick to just say, am I faithful with what I'm doing? Not am I better off than that guy, better off than this guy. Am I faithful? For Christians, for members of the church called together, Paul says, this is how pride is defeated. He asks a couple of questions. What do you have that you didn't receive? I guess nothing, Corinthians should answer, right? And then Paul follows that up. So if you did, Corinthians, right? he's intending to cut them to the heart here. If you have nothing that you did not receive, why do you boast as if you did? Why do you boast in your attachment to, to Paul, to Apollos, to Christ, all of those things are gifts. All of those things are gifts, just as your new leaders are gifts to you from God. As you received my message, as you received Apollos' message, the message which is about Christ, it's all gift. And these leaders now are gifts. The status that you have, Corinthians, if you're one of those who's sitting up in the, uh, in the, the Roman administration, that's a gift. If you are making a killing here by running a, a, a merchant trade on the Dialcus. That's a gift from God. Every day is a gift from God. What do you have? It's not a gift. It's still a question we can ask ourselves. What do I have that isn't a gift? And if it is indeed a gift, why, why would I boast about anything? As if it weren't a gift. The enemy in Corinth was pride. And the enemy often, for the church, is still pride. Just to throw something out there, right? It is the month of June. I'm not talking about Pride Month. Right? This month where, ultimately, something that is sin is, is celebrated, and upheld, and elevated. God intends for people to be, uh, to, be to use this, this gift of human sexuality as a gift between man, woman, to be used in this, the special, unique marriage relationship. And yet, I hear Christians out there saying that we should make August straight Pride Month. How stupid! How foolish! Have we missed the point? <laughs> These, what have we received that's not a gift? 
But as a gift, why do we boast? Why would we take pride in it? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Not in their own righteousness. Not in their own avoidance of sins, the sins of others. Yes, we avoid those things. That we might boast in the Lord, who redeemed us from them, who has rescued us, who has washed us clean, and brought us into the family of God through baptism. Here's something we can boast in. We've been given an inheritance. The God of all things, the God of the universe, the creator of all, as Moses calls him, the God who gives life to everything who made all the world by the work of his hands. That God is our Father. That God has written his name on our hearts. That God has washed us clean. That God feeds us here. That God speaks to us here. So we go out with Jesus' words to the apostles. Freely you have received. Freely give. Amen.